I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash Comes. Harry, what mouthy delights of bringing the joy this time. Well, well, on a Northern League touchline, I, I met a man, a man named Alan, um, and he, hand, he he announced to me that he'd bought um, fifty packets of the limited edition opal fruits that came out earlier this year. And I thought it was going to be a sort of replay of the um, famous Lady Lad scene in which J- Terry Collier says, I'd, "I'd offer you a beer, but I've only got six cans." <laughs> but he was telling me that he'd only, "I've only got, I'd offer you an opal fruit, but I've only got fifty packets." But in fact, Alan shared with me, and I've got them here now. He gave me one of the lemon and one of the lime because, of course, when Starburst, when opal fruits became Starbursts, the lemon and lime flavour were combined mm-hmm. as lemon and lime. And repl- and then a black currant flavour was brought in, which he which Alan disapproved of, and rightly so, I feel. So anyway, so twenty three years after the opal fruit disappeared with its classic flavours, strawberry, orange, lemon, and lime, four refreshing fruit flavours, as you'd remember, Dan. Um, yeah. They're back in limited edition. I don't know how many packets Alan's got left now, but I'm very very uh, I'm very pleased that he's shared them with me. I won't eat one because, as you know, they're made to make your mouth water, and I would hate to splutter all over the microphone. <laughs> They are going to be limited if Alan's bought them all, aren't they, for everyone else? Well, uh, well, according to a spokes, uh, the, sp- the person from Mars who's apparently in charge of fruit confectionery um, said, um, you Brits better buy them while you can, because once they're gone, they're gone. Oh, there you are. You, you Brits with, with your terrible green teeth. As all That's right. I'm surprised you didn't say that, actually. <laughs> it, it, sounded like, it sounded like it was coming to that. It's like, you they know, probably think there's a beans on toast flavour. Americans seem to be obsessed, certainly on Twitter, with the idea that all English people eat beans on toast. I don't know why they. Well, <laughs> eat beans on toast and have bad teeth. Never. <laughs> well, there we are. Anyway, so so that's what I've got down. Two opal fruits, but a very you know very very special opal fruits. And thank you again to Alan. Yeah, I, I had a tiny bit of, co- of confectionery update in that. I've noticed since I had COVID, which I don't like to mention, a couple of months ago, I've concluded that I can't taste Nestle chocolate anymore. I had a, an orange Kit Kat and I couldn't really taste the chocolate. I had an, then I had an animal bar just to check. Uh, and yet I can taste more expensive chocolate like lint and things like that. So it's a bit like one of those people that go into a coma and wake up speaking a different language or something like that. It's a very <laughs> you strange, become a different person that happened. <laughs> A science fiction short story, The Man Who Couldn't Taste Chocolate Bars. <laughs> couldn't taste cheap chocolate bars. <laughs> Never a better time to try Hershey bars because they really taste like sick. So you'd be relieved <laughs> if you couldn't actually taste them. <laughs> While I'm on my kick about Americans complaining about British food. That's, well, well, funny enough, because another update, down which I can offer, is that I remember a while ago I, had a, I, had, I brought the Charleston Chew mm. bar 
And I noticed that on the Ameri- on the NFL on NBC, uh, Drew Brees, the great quarterback, was asked his favourite um, candy for Halloween, and he named the, the Charleston Chew. And one of the other blokes said, "Wow, is that? Can you still? Do they still make that?" I thought, well, we've had it on this podcast. If you listened to the When Saturday Comes podcast, you'd have been aware of that, Mr. NBC sportscaster. Another person that doesn't listen to this podcast is the comedian Jason Manford, who had quite a long bit on the radio the other day, um, doubting that the Bee Gees were, had association with the Isle of Man because he'd seen a plaque in the airport there. And I thought, well, you know, there are podcasts you can go to for that type of thing. He's got, he's got a lot to catch up on. That's all I'll say. <laughs> And Harry, what else has been happening in Northumbria? I see Carlisle City had a narrow Northern League victory the other night. Yes, against uh, Durham City. Not, I think we, we saw them played and we, we thought they were quite hapless. Well, now, now they're entirely hap-free. Yes, uh, D- Durham City beat them 16-1. Um, and that's actually the third time this season they've conceded double a double-digit total, if that, if that makes sense. Um, they've played 15 games and conceded 87 goals, uh, which by my mathematics is almost six per game. Um, and the other thing is that Carlisle actually missed a penalty as well late on. Whether they did it on purpose, I don't know. But yeah, 61. I don't think there's, there can't be many teams who've got a worse record. Uh, one point uh, and the goal difference of minus 79. I think Barnstable Town in the Southern League Division One South, they've conceded 62 goals in 12 games and have no points and a goal difference of minus 57. So maybe there should be some sort of playoff between Durham City and Barnstable Town, a special competition, an uncharity shield or something like that. Um, aside from aside from that, I uh, I noticed the other week that, that the referees have started wearing two watches. I don't know when that started. Well, presumably one watch that's got the normal time on it and one watch that has kind of match time. Or maybe just the, t- the time somewhere else in case one of the <laughs> players sort of says, hey, Liner, what's the time in Hong Kong? And he can just look at his watch and say, oh, it's just about midnight or something like that. So I know it's um, also that last week, I wonder if it was one of those things that you hear shouted out whenever the clocks are altered. Someone shouted out, uh, because they seem to be playing a lot of injury time, someone shouted out, have you put your clock back early, referee? I thought that referees must hear that. They must dread. They must dread the day when the clocks alter for that very for that very wise crack from the comedian in the crowd. Um, also been slightly vexed by the wheel away goals, Dan. The goals on wheels. Mm. Are you? I think you probably you probably dislike them. I imagine as oh, more traditionalists. But well, I don't really yeah. mind them except that they wheel them away before you've left the ground. <laughs> It strikes me, it's like, it's like if you were having a meal in a restaurant and the waiter just took your plate away when you, before you'd finished. Why do they, can they just leave them? What do they think that the fans are going to run off with them? Imagine that someone in Seaham is going to be joyriding down the bank on a goal they've stolen. And if they're worried about people stealing them, why have they got them on wheels? It just makes it easier. You should bang them in the ground like they're supposed to be. That's what I say. It's the episode of Last of the Summer Wine that we all want to see, isn't it? Really? It is when, yes, riding, yeah, joy, joy riding on a stolen goal. <laughs> that, that would be a good thing. Aside from that, also, um, we were talking about um, points deductions and, and, and scandals in sport. And I, there is a documentary on um, Netflix called Bad Sports, which has an episode about the Calciopoli um, scandal, which was the one that followed the Totonero scandal and involved a man called Luciano Moggi who appears in it and is so much like a character from a Paolo Sorrentino film that you really feel, you really feel at, point, at some point it's going to come up under it. Uh, Luciano Moggi is voiced by an actor. <laughs> it's extremely sensitive. It's worth, worth catching up with that. We've also been watching Dogs of Berlin um, on Netflix, which features the... It's a story, it's a, a, you know, a crime, a crime drama, which features a great um, German footballer of Turkish extraction who on the eve of the Germany v Turkey World Cup match is found murdered. Um, sounds pretty crap from that description, doesn't it? But it's actually quite, it's actually quite good apart from the football scenes, which are kind of computer generated and are genuinely terrible, proving that you can't really, or, or no one so far has actually done anything good with top class football on TV. But anyway, worth catching up on. It's, uh, it's filled with sex, violence and bad language. So quite like my own life. Um, in respect to the bad language, anyway. <laughs> in things that you 
it probably happened a while ago that you only just noticed, i.e. the referees' watches. I was the same at the Borough game last Saturday when I noticed that none of our players or the opposition at Birmingham City wear long-sleeve shirts anymore. They all wear short sleeve with some sort of leotard long arms uh, that go down to the wrist. I, 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 I could just... never understand when they had short-sleeve shirts on gloves. No. Well, Sam Allardyce used to say when he was a player at Bolton... Ian Greaves, who was the Bolton manager at the time, wouldn't allow his central defenders to wear long sleeve shirts. <laughs> they needed to show they were they were tough lads, even in the depths of winter. So even Big Sam balked at the idea of of um, having to wear a short sleeve shirt. And Andy, any London tidings? Well, I should just say on that subject of goals on wheels and having your plate taken away from the restaurant before you finished. That happened to me last Saturday. I had my plate swiped away. I thought it was maybe some sort of pro- COVID protocol I wasn't previously aware of. <laughs> Make a sort of plaintive objection to it. Anyway, um, talking about referees and time, actually, what might have been the football first at Brisbane Road only last Saturday, all went against Hartlepool. The referee didn't add on four minutes of four of first half injury time that the fourth official indicated. Took the teams off, then they added the four minutes to the start of the second half. After which the teams then changed ends and started the real second half. Hartlepool already two down, lost five nil. This is a bizarre development. I mean, you know, we've got sea levels arising. We've got the remains of mammoths are coming to the surface in melting permafrost. And we've got referees mucking about with injury time. These are all like signs of the apocalypse. You know, I think you should start, if you haven't already, start stocking up on food. If You know, get some tins in, extra tins in at least. Things that strange things are going on. And there's me with my plate in the restaurant as well. And throw that in. (laughs) Last week we heard from a company in Spain who say they're, they're in an, an investment platform that sells football artwork, limited edition football artwork. And the, I'll quote from it. It says, our first piece is the gold-plated footprint of the right foot of the magician Ronaldinho. We, we've taken the mould of his footprint and have, in a handmade process, the artwork will be made available in a limited edition. And it goes on, we believe that our product and our values fit with yours and we can work together on it. And what, what were we doing wrong that they would think that our, our, <laughs> our gold-plated footprint of Ronaldinho is exactly the kind of thing we're, we're connected to? What else are they planning? You know, Cristiano Ronaldo's immense Ad- Adam's apple cast in bronze or the bottled essence of Jimmy Bullard's cheeky personality. I think these people have to be stopped. Uh, anyway, uh, I've, said, I've said that to them, obviously, in an email um, sent from my, my, my uh, anonymous account. I've mentioned before that we were, we were once sent a bottle of Captain Morgan's rum, which had an image of Wes Morgan dressed as a pirate on the front. And we uh, we still, uh, if we still, when we had it in, in the office, we'd all have a, four of us have a, a sip of it on a Monday morning if all our teams had won at the weekend. But given that the teams are Villa, Norwich, Sheffield Wednesday and Everton, I think it happened about three times ever. <laughs> we still have a sort of Captain Morgan index. And in the last four rounds of league matches, the last 16 games, out of 48 possible points, our teams have got six points. Six <laughs> out of 48. So I think it's time I started looking for a new team. I thought maybe Italy, they seem to be quite good, are they? Or Sharif Tiraspol. Anyway, I'll let, I'll let you know how I'm getting on with that. <laughs> well, hold on to your hats. We've another When Saturday Comes live event to announce. Please join me, Andy and Harry, for our online Christmas party on Thursday, December 2nd at 7pm. Join we three unwise men for talk of football, board games, Dukla Prague away kits, orange balls, an appearance from a seasonal random topic generator, and almost certainly no mention of Boxing Day 1963. Tickets are available now for £10 at whensaturdaycomes.eventbrite.co.uk and Eventbrite is B-R-I-T-E. And our patrons get discounts on that price depending on which tier they're in. Log in to patreon.com slash when Saturday comes and find the relevant post to get your discount code. Then follow the link to Eventbrite to get a ticket. That's just one bonus of joining our supporters club, which also entitles you to at least twice as much of our half-decent podcast chatter. Imagine such ecstasy. Andy, issue 415 of the magazine is out. Now tell us about some of the contents this time. Uh, well, we've done, as you might imagine, we've done a feature on the Newcastle takeover, the Saudi takeover of Newcastle. Um, Jim Wraith, who's a Newcastle fan on why, as he says, um, 
Personally, the takeover represents a further step in a journey of alienation and disillusionment, my, the slower trophy of my passion for the game. Uh, we've also got James Montague, who writes about uh, the Middle East football in the Middle East on how buying Newcastle fits in with the Saudis' sort of big plan to use uh, sport to promote themselves. Uh, and he says perhaps the Aramco Stadium, uh, named after the Saudi state oil company, would enter the lexicon the same way the Etihad or the Emirates has. And this is the blueprint the Saudis want to follow. Names and brands that become associated with trophies and stadiums and Super Sundays rather than the torturing of activists. Uh, on a lighter note, and there have to be a lighter <laughs> note after that, um, we got the object lesson feature, a piece by Thomas Shelton about Russian dolls based very loosely on, on Norwich players. It is, uh, there was a whole set of these dolls for English clubs were on sale in a tourist shop in Prague, and he was given some. And he wonders if... Um, if the carver has had the benefit of seeing these players in the flesh or let alone in action, going by the final images, he's more likely working from a poorly photocopied sticker album. And they certainly don't look, for anybody who sees the issue, they're not very good likenesses of, of the of the players involved. Um, we've got Glenn Wilson on the FA Cup first round and, and teams who've made just one appearance ever in the, in the first round of the Cup. Um, this season, it's um, well, so far Bowers and Pitsy who are playing the Eastman League, I think, and Stratford Town from Stratford-on-Avon. In the past, uh, the teams include London Paper Mills, who only lost 1-0 to South End in 1933, Birmingham Corporation Tramways, who lost the next season to Workington, and as Glenn points out, a, a slight odd thing, six different colliery teams who made the, made the first round for the first time only in the 1950s. This is the heyday of footballing minors, so I hope someone's done a dissertation on that somewhere. Um, <laughs> if, if the university system is still functioning, somebody surely will have done. Uh, Harry's column this month, or what is normally Harry's column, has a, a guest contribution from Cameron Carter on, on modern commentators fail to say memorable things when goals are scored, and, and instead they're, they're inclined to recite statistics instead. So Simon Brotherton said recently of Danny Ings, after he scored, it's his first goal in the last six games. As Cameron said, that's, that, that, that's not what the kind of thing you want to hear. The only true response to a goal is a cry such such as, oh my word, what a screamer, kind of thing <laughs> heard in 1970s schoolyards across the UK, but never attributed to an individual commentator. And Harry took a break from his column this month, as he was instead doing the match of the month. Yeah, you've been on your exotic travels. I have. I've been to, I've been to Riot, Colliery Welfare. We predict a Riot, as well as we often joke. Uh, to see them play Berry AFC, one, one who I imagined are maybe one of two teams from Berry. I'm a bit confused about that. <laughs> um, probably best not to go into it. There seems to be some schism uh, going on in Berry. There will be letters if you do. <laughs> Indeed, and um, uh, Ryup, I should say, one of those teams that have only ever uh, got to the FA first round, FA Cup first round once uh, when they played Workington in front of a crowd of four thousand. Probably mentioned, I think, in, in the match of the month. Um, it was in the FA Vars, as I say. It was a really fantastic game. Um, three really good goals. As you imagine, there isn't any real press facilities. So I had to take my notes while standing on the touchline. I struggled to read my writing at the best of times. Also, there was no uh, there was no program or team sheet, so it took me some while to work out what that. I kept putting NBM, and, and I realised it was Man Bun Man. <laughs> which I know now is Harry Brazel or Harry Brazel, a uh, very good midfield player who plays for Berry. He was probably player of the match. Uh, also, James Ellis um, was on good form for uh, for Ripe. He's the top scorer in the Northern League at the moment. Of course, fantastically, it turned out that the man I was chatting to, I was standing next to, was actually his dad. Uh, not something I imagine would happen in a at, at a, a top level football match. So yes, that was very that was a really good game. I say three good goals. I met a, a Berry fan at the bus stop on the way on the way back into Sunderland, who said, as I used at the end of the piece, um, I sort of said, "Are you enjoying this season?" You know, because obviously a few friends of mine like, who supported Darlington really enjoyed it. You know, when they were in the Northern League, they, they quite kind of enjoyed the, the experience. And he said, "Well, it's a bit strange coming to places like this where you've no idea where you are." <laughs> which I quite kind of liked as he kind of stared around Ryan slightly blankly. So yes, so good fun all around. And we can't finish the section without congratulating Andy there on a really swift mention of the word Ithmian. That was the fastest you oh, ever I, said I said it, it so casually because I can say yeah. it. You did. You didn't, you didn't, I didn't even notice you'd said it, Andy. You did it so well. It just passed through. It was such high pitch that you didn't hear it. <laughs> Jackpot tickets. Pound a go, draw it half time, five hundred pound prize draw. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin badges. 
Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Program. 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, drawn at half time, 500 pounds, yours to take on tonight. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove, here we go. Hazard United, Seb Dykstra, the portrayal of goalkeeper's trousers in Armenian Verisma Opera 1893-1912, and it's landed on distinctive managerial looks and traits. Ooh. Harry, what the heck is like does that bring to mind? Well, it, it makes me think of uh, Nerio Rocco, the great uh, Milan manager, who's a, a huge man with a with a sort of with a massive look and with a massive face, probably the biggest face <laughs> in the history of football. I think Nerio Rocco, he, he was like a, a sort of Jock Steen's big brother, if you can imagine such a thing. This huge face, a huge man with a huge face, he's a bit like Hoss from Bonanza. That sort of look, a massive, massive face. Anyway, I mean, he was he was a great manager. I so say, generally, I think apocryphally uh, credited with saying to the players before the game, "Go out there and kick everything that moves. If it's the ball, so much the better." But um, Nerio Rocca was one of those managers who wore a hat uh, in the dugout. Um, another famous hat wearer, of course, was Helmut Schoen. And I think on a previous podcast, if people could cast their minds back that far, I did play a record. I chose my record, Udo Jurgens. Der Mann mit der Mütze, the man in the cap, which was, of course, Helmut Schoen. Um, but uh, Nerio Rocca generally favoured a kind of uh, a sort of trilby or fedora hat. Um, but I've seen photos of him on occasions when he'd, when he'd evidently gone somewhere where he hadn't got a hat with him and it turned out to be sunny, where he fashioned a hat, a paper hat, out of a copy of Corriere della Sera. <laughs> And it not, but but being an Italian, he didn't make one of those sort of pirate hats that your mum used to make for you when you were a kid. He's made somehow made a rather sort of stylish paper hat out of Corriere della Sera. I don't know if there was any any other managers who'd been spotted in the dugout wearing a paper hat, but Nerio Rocco uh, certainly went in for that. I'd also think as well of of um, Raymond Gertels, um, the great uh, Belgian manager. Raymond Le Science, uh, famously in charge of Marseille during a, a, a period which also we touched on last time when Bernard Tappy was the uh, was the owner of uh, Marseille. Raymond Gertels, he had sort of mad, he had the hair of a sort of mad grandma, I think it'd be fair to say, and a, and a scrunched up face. It looked like a kind of Walloon wee Bobby Thompson or possibly Marquis Smith. And later on, he took to dying. He was one of the managers who dyed his hair. But like most people who dye their hair, they never choose a natural hair colour. And Raymond Gertel's hair was dyed a kind of brown, but not a brown hair colour, but like a brown shoe colour. Um, he also smoked. He was also one of the managers who smoked very, very heavily. And I noticed that remember, people would remember that um, the BBC did 100 Greatest Britons and the, the Belgian TV did a similar thing. And Raymond Gertels came 30, he was voted the 38th greatest Belgian of all time. Um, one place behind Justine Henin-Arden, the tennis player, and one place ahead of Ernest Solvay, who invented a process for producing washing soda. <laughs> um, I should say that top of the list was, uh, was Father Damien. Uh, not Father Damo, the cool priest from Father Ted, but 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 Father Damien, who, a Belgian priest who worked with lepers and was and was actually saint, um, uh, sanctified uh, by the Vatican. So anyway, so that was so that was uh, Raymond Les Science. talking about managers who dyed the hair. Of course, uh, Cesare Cesare Maldini, um, the manager of Italy, who had his hair centre parted and then dyed it a very jet black colour. And I saw him when he was manager of Italy um, against Chile at Bordeaux, and it rained. And when his hair was wet, it, it looked like patent leather. <laughs> and, of course, he, the other thing with Cesare, Cesare Maldini was, of course, he was the father of Paolo Maldini. And Cesare Maldini looked like kind of Steve Buscemi. <laughs> and then Paolo Maldini, and there's a photo of him and Paolo Maldini together. And as, when you look at it, all you think is, wow, how beautiful must Paolo <laughs> Maldini's mum have been? <laughs> 
Uh, talking about chain smokers as well, the Roman girdles, as they were often photographed sitting in the dugout with a fag in his mouth. Uh, another great chain smoker, of course, was uh, Cesar Luis Menotti uh, of Argentina, the great romantic manager of Argentina, who had a kind of, I always felt he had the look of a sort of seedy middle aged Lothario who would be hanging around in a provincial wine bar drinking Matthias Rose and nodding his, singing along to Desperado by the Eagles. Desperado, you ain't getting any younger. Your pain and your hunger are driving you home. And I always felt that was probably Cesar Louis Minotti. You can see that might have been his theme. Um, other managers with strange uh, hair as well. There were, a couple of managers that, uh, there were a couple of European managers who went out to Africa, famous for coaching in Africa. Uh, Winfried Winnie Schaffer, German. He had a sort of centre-parted white, bushy white mane, um, but he was rivaled by Bruno Metsu, um, who was manager of Senegal. Uh, he had great long flowing locks and always wore a t-shirt underneath a, a sort of pastel-coloured suit, giving him a distinct sort of Michael Bolton air. And also, I think also of Arrigo Sacchi as well, when we're on the subject of strange clothing. Arrigo Sacchi was manager of of Italy, he often wore a great, an extraordinary baggy long shell suit that looked like it, he was trying to popularise the shell, the sort of track caftan. Very different from Don Reeve's car coat, I feel. It was nice to hear mention of is it Nino uh, Rocco. I didn't quite get the... I think he was the manager, though, who used to have a, a couple of rums or something at, at lunchtime at training and lay on top of the lockers. Yeah, he did, yeah. He, that was it. <laughs> he was from Trieste, and one of the other trainers was from Trieste, I think, and they... At lunchtime, they used to they used to have a bottle of red wine, and then yeah, he used to get on top of the locker and fall asleep. But he's so huge, that's, that's I thought we'd have got wedged. I didn't quite understand. He's like a sort of desperate Dan size figure. How he got on top of the lockers? I don't know how he clambered up. The sight of him clambering up there must have been something. And then the ceiling rising every time his stomach went out during a, a snooze, a snore. <laughs> <laughs> and. How about you, Andy? Distinctive managerial looks and traits. Well, just going off completely up, not off topic, but that 100 Greatest Belgians thing and the 100 Greatest Britons and weird votes. And I always remember Michael Crawford came 17th. He was 17th. <laughs> There's obviously a huge block vote by Michael Crawford fans that they should have disqualified. Because I remember he came in just ahead, I think, of Queen Victoria and Paul McCartney. <laughs> But just behind, I think just behind, like Alfred the Great. Yeah, well, there's, there's at least the Belgian list had all, all the people on it were Belgian. I mean, a Bono was on the the greatest Britons had Bono on it. He shouldn't have been on it for two reasons: firstly, because he's not British, and secondly, obviously, because he's crap. But <laughs> well, uh, manage, uh, but anyway, uh, back to um, <laughs> with unusual things: managers with pipes. I don't mean copper pipes on the touch. I mean, manage, uh, Jimmy Arfield. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> copper pipes ready for the an intense half-time team talk for a team that's 2-0 <laughs> down. Um, Jimmy Arfield, who took Leeds to the European Cup final in 75, he was the, the successor to Brian Clough's brief uh, uh, period in charge. He was a, a pipe smoker in the dugout, as was another Italian manager, Enzo Berzot, who won the World Cup with Italy in 1982. It's a rare, th- a rare, rare to say it now, but a pipe smoke in general is quite rare. I remember, I think I mentioned before, on my early trips to a football match to see Tramir, that pipe smoke was one of the things I kind of noticed as kind of smell of a football ground, which you wouldn't get now. I also think it's quite a reassuring sight in a, in a football manager. It gives them a, of a certain era. As, as a supporter, you'd be sure to think, oh, well, He'll steer us to mid-table safety at least. You know, it's quite a reassuring look. But needs to be a manager of a certain age, I think. Not not a younger manager like that, that hipster guy who used to be at Exeter, the Cravat, is Paul Tids, Tidsdale. If oh, he had yeah, a pipe yeah. as well, you'd think, no, you're trying too hard, aren't you? you know. <laughs> Cigarettes, of course, and maybe the occasional cigar, you know, a Slim Panatella or a Will's Whiffs. Uh, Malcolm Allison, of course, when he had his... Uh, Fedora, when he was sort of playing the part of a big character in a way, he also had a, a big cigar with it. Don't know if any managers who've taken snuff on the sidelines. I bet there might have been some in the, in the kind of Victorian or, or uh, Edwardian eras. Um, on the subject of, of managers with long hair, there's also that thing. Uh, John Bond, uh, when he was manager at Norwich and Man City, did something similar to what I think Richie Benno, the cricket commentator, had done. At some point, Richie Benno grew his hair over his ears. I guess early 70s were the, were the kind of when he was kind of middle-aged then, but it was kind of a trendy thing to do, but he just stuck with that same incongruous hairstyle for the rest of his life, and so did John Bond. He's like very kind of BBC regional news presenter, kind of mid-70s nationwide <laughs> presenter. It's a sort of helmet of hair, 
which John Bond maintained, didn't really didn't suit his face, but um, he stuck with it. And um, there's Robert Urban, coach of the Senetian team of the 70s, who got to European Cup final with a they dominated French football for a decade. He had a ginger afro. I don't I, not a look that anyone has as as yet tried to emulate. And again, I, I don't think Paul Paul Tidsdale should try it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on a modern fashion note, actually, not really to do with hair, but our, our weekly newsletter that the Howl mentioned uh, pointed out only last week that Scott Parker's ties are getting increasingly tight. He's done these interviews <laughs> recently with these tiny knots after Bournemouth games. So someone has yanked them, yanked his tie during the game. What are they doing as a kind of good luck thing? Because Bournemouth haven't lost yet. Is he being bullied by somebody bigger, bigger than him on the bench? Or are they thinking, oh, he's saying to somebody during the second half, come on, it's good luck, you know, really give it a, a proper pull. And he, and he goes up to the to the interviews afterwards and he looks like he's been half strangled. Um <laughs> Don Revy, you mentioned about his um, car coat. He also used to have, he had a supposedly lucky suit, a pale blue suit. Um, but he also had, you, know, you, you see pictures of him in the dugout, he'd often have a tartan rug, a car rug, as he used to be called, draped over his knees. I suppose he could have worn it like a shawl if it was snowing. In terms of odd behaviour generally, there's also Colin Murphy, who's best known for, he had two periods as manager of Lincoln, he was at South End as well. He wrote these, bizarre stream of consciousness program notes this is kind of late 80s early 90s and we mentioned occasionally in wc get the occasion quote from them one of them is um life is not like a bowl of cherries but more like a bowl of hungarian goulash hot sticky and at times intestinately negative <laughs> isn't, isn't it though he's quite you know, it, it certainly needed saying that i <laughs> There was a manager of Swindon. I can't remember who it was. He said when he, he said something like, "When the second goal went in, we knew our pig was dead." Yes, that was that was uh, Danny Williams. Oh. We had, a, we had a, a, a quiz about this once. We had to fill in the blanks. That was one of the, it, it, when the second goal went in. We knew our blank was blank. And another one from that I remember was Gordon Milne. I think it was manager of Coventry at the time. Who said. There are teams in this division who will steal your dinner from under your nose. If you don't heed the warnings, you get nailed to the cross. <laughs> it's just bizarre. You've lost your dinner and then you've been crucified. I mean, that's, it's like a double whammy, isn't it? It's bad enough, you know. It brought to mind for me Dave Smith, who managed a number of clubs, but I remember him because of his sticker in my Panini album being quite frightening because he had extraordinarily clownish hair and, in fact, was nicknamed Coco, I later found out. And his time at Dundee started badly and got worse, really. He clapped off Dundee United after they beat Dundee 3-0, which is never a good move in any derby. The literary quotes he came out with after interviews tended to grate with people. But even after a win at Celtic, he quoted Robert Browning, if a man's reach should not exceed his grasp, what is heaven for? Which is something different for your Saturday <laughs> night TV coverage. Results weren't great, but it's said that the final straw was when he got the players to play hide-and-seek in training, whereas I think that's an excellent training method. <laughs> but, but certainly that the hair sticks with you. And now it's a very, a very few bald managers and more of a hairy time, in fact. If you think of someone like Conte, who's now back in, in British English management, his, his hair was remarkable in its comeback, wasn't it? And, <laughs> and someone like Gareth Ainsworth, who has a style all of his own, very hairy. Well, Dave Smith did, made, made, did that thing of, yeah, he grew it long at the back, didn't he? Which only emphasised <laughs> the fact he had none on top. Whereas now, bald, balding managers would tend to be uh, have shaved heads, I think. Yeah. yeah, well, the the, the, the photo of, of him reminded me, of course, of Jimmy Melia, uh, manager of Brighton and Hove Albion, when they when they got to the FA Cup in 1983. Who had a sort of Mac, he had a real kind of Max Wall hairstyle. I think probably an irrepressible, an irrepressible Liverpoolian. I think Jimmy Melia, um, best known during that. Well, he would have been a comedian because they're all they're all funny from there. They're all they? funny. He wouldn't have been <laughs> competing with everybody there. It'd been too difficult. But he he famously wore white shoes, didn't he, during that? His dancing shoes, and I know that on Wikipedia it was it said that he was noted for his disco style dress, um, but but all he did was wear white shoes. I think he might have he may have won, at one point worn leather trousers as well. But anyway, he so I sort of thought of him with his with his white shoes. Didn't need much to mark you out. I think Jimmy Mealy he he um, had a much younger partner, possibly either a second wife or girlfriend after the end of his first marriage. So I think there's a bit of a sort of you know. There was a bit of a disco man with younger woman thing going on there. Oh. <laughs> but how do you explain Phil Brown's wax jacket and chiffon scarf? I want to know. In his in his last days at Southend, that was quite remarkable. Channeling was... David Essex playing a 
a gypsy in heartbeat. That's a really modern cultural reference again from this podcast. There, Phil Brown, who I'm just throwing this in, I don't because I remember again Phil Brown, who um, in a radio interview seemed to think that homophobia meant fear of leaving home. <laughs> <laughs> a, fr- a friend of mine from, who's from Tyneside said that he was watching uh, Phil. Phil Brown came on Match of the Day when he was manager of Hull, and he said to his wife, "Oh look, I was at school with him," and she looked at him and said. Are his family Spanish? <laughs> because of his notoriously tawny skin. <laughs> One that came to mind to me was a jumper, Brian Clough's green jumper. And it seemed to me he stopped winning things when he put on the green jumper, which must have been sometime in the 80s. Or maybe it was earlier and I'm completely wrong, but I, I, there were other yeah. issues for Brian Clough, of course, at the time. <laughs> it was a sort of green sweatshirt, like a light green, it was a kind of like a sweatshirt, I think. It looked like yeah, the sort of thing you had to put on when you went, the, the games teacher made you put it on if you went in goal, <laughs> didn't it? Yeah. He goes, put that on. If you're in goal, you'll have to put put this on. I had thought that he was wearing that, uh, I looked this up, that he was wearing that, the photo call when Trevor Francis and Trevor Francis of course, went on to score the winning goal in the European Cup final that season. But no, he's wearing a forest tracksuit instead, Clough. But he is also carrying a squash racket. So he, <laughs> it, there's an odd element to the picture, but not, it's not the green jumper. He often seemed to qu- carry the squash racket around. I wonder if he actually played squash. It's just a bit like the, the man with the cricket bat in Spinal Tap. Yeah, it's a, yeah, a, a conversation piece, right? Affectation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I also think as well, when, when managers started writing things down as well, you know, when managers started appearing with a pen and a notebook, that was that was fairly recent, wasn't it? I think one of the yeah. probably one of the first people I seem to remember doing it was John John Gregory when he was manager of Villa. Uh, you sort of felt he's probably just writing down a list of his favourite Bruce Springsteen songs in reverse <laughs> order. Somewhere there was somebody wrote in that we had a letter in WC, which again I think I may have mentioned before. I'm not sure they were able to see lean lean over by the dugout where Mickey Adams was manager of. I think it was when he was at Coventry, and he seemed to have written or Leicester perhaps it was, and he seemed to have written. Scary big diagonal on a piece of paper, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was actually scoey. It was for James Scowcroft. He still did. it was big diagonal, but it was scoey big diagonal. <laughs> There's something that the notes of his th- that was the notes of his therapist. Yeah, but what I mean, scary big of? diagonal is a good piece of advice. The players would know. Surely they they understand that perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Phil Scolari as well. I remember there was one World Cup where he insisted he had a he had a sort of magnetic board. He had a board with a sort of magnetic board with markers on. I remember he was bringing on a sub and he was moving these markers about all over this board. And you're like this, you know, the subs the subs trying to you know he's going to have his studs checked. He doesn't want all this because Big Phil was pretty. He was. His his behaviour on the touchline was quite like he always reminded me of the, a sort of angry neighbour from a from a Laurel and Hardy film. He kind of marched up and down. Scalari's board is probably saying, "So Oswald only had five seconds to let off three shots from this angle. He couldn't have possibly hit the head, and there must have been firing coming from somewhere else by, by the grassy knoll." <laughs> that would be Sir Alex Ferguson. That's what he'd have on. Oh his yes, board. of course. Yeah, he's he's a, a Kennedy assassination file. They would have he would have had a table with a map of Dealey Plaza on it and yeah. cars moving around. I think when they panned to Alex Ferguson when Manchester United were getting hammered at home to Liverpool recently and they said he was shocked at the performance, he was really thinking about that again and something had just hit him, hadn't he? It was a new theory had just come to him and that's what he was really thinking about. That's, that's what it was. He was jotting it down while it was fresh in his mind. It'd be like me, it'd be like, like, it'll say man bun man. That's what he will say. <laughs> He's thinking of Mo Salah and how Mo Salah saw recently was described as, in in a, a newspaper report, as the ultimate predator. And he thought, <laughs> if, if there is such a thing as a killer whale appreciation society, you hope they'd be getting in touch and say, yeah, "Excuse me, I think you'll find." <laughs> he might be he might be a good player, but stick him in the ocean, see how he gets on. Yeah, it'd be like one of those, like a horror film, a slasher horror film, <laughs> Ultimate Predator, but it's like Mo Salah. You think it's going to be something like the creature from Alien, yeah. but then it's a, then it's an Egyptian striker. And he's, he's scoring a hat trick, one of them just on side. <laughs> right. 
Right, it's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Well, I've gone for Vincindy fans from FCS. We are fans of FCS, that being Saarbrück, the main club in the Saarland region of Germany. And uh, they played in the first, this is from 1976, a bit earlier, they played in the first year of the European Cup as representatives of the Saarland. They lost to AC Milan despite winning in Milan. Now, the Saarland at that point was an independent entity. People then voted whether to join West Germany or France and opted for Germany. And the Saarbrück had actually played in the French League for a couple of years in the, in the late 40s. Anyway, it, I think it's always, it's always a good time to make a record when you're doing well. And this is from 1976. It was a promotion year, but up to the Bundesliga. They've spent five seasons in the Bundesliga in total, but they've never lasted longer than two years in a row there. And they're currently in the third division. This is actually the B-side. The, uh, the uh, A-side is called uh, Blau und Schwarz ist unser Dress. Blue and black are our colours. But this is a, a fan's poem um, interspersed with the players chanting the chorus. And uh, it seems to rhyme as well. It, I suppose it might seem less charming if it was English, but that, that's true for most things, isn't it? <laughs> Wir kennen alle die Stars am Balle. Von München bis Berlin. And Harry, what's your own choice this time? Um, I've gone for uh, also Blau Weiss uh, by Blau Weiss Linz of Austria. Um, I was in a I was in Salzburg about a, a decade or so ago, and I was in a, there's a famous beer cellar there that's underneath an Augustine monastery. Um, and when I was down there, it's a vast, cavernous place um, where you get this, you'll get a, a litre of beer in a stone jug. Which imagine a litre of beer in a stone jug, you, st- you struggle to lift it up. Anyway, I was sort of walking back from the bar with my, and this t- very nice Austrian couple asked me if I'd take a photo of them. And we started talking, it turned out they were Graz fans, um, but they lived, in, they lived in Linz. And they said, we now live in Linz, they said. A city, of course, which is famous all around the world for only one thing. And I thought, oh no, I'm in a beer cellar in, you know, in Austria. Now that someone's going to bring up Adolf Hitler. <laughs> uh, but it turned out that, and then they went, and then I was sort of, so there was a sort of slightly nervous pause, and then they went, of course, the the Linzer tort, the famous cake. And I went, oh yes, that's what it's famous for. Anyway, I got on very well with them and uh, had to leave. They started buying schnapps, so I thought it was time to leave. And so I said goodbye to them. And then when, and when, I, said, when, I, when I, they said, oh, it's been really nice talking to you. When you came in, we thought you would be a football fan because, of course, you look exactly like a famous manager. And I said, who's that? I said, oh, who? And they said, Sir Alex Ferguson. I thought, wow, you must have really had a huge amount to drink if you think I look like Alex Ferguson. But there we are. Anyway, they were from Linz. And so, um, and this is Blau Weiss by Blau, uh, by Blau Weiss Linz fans. My own choice this time is the ITV theme for World Cup 1982, Matador, by the composer Jeff Wayne. Wayne also did themes for the big match and world of sport. And I've often wondered about the commissioning process for a football theme. Do they say things like, we want something jaunty but meaningful that might work with Elton Wellsby's voice over it? It's a, it's a tough a tough gig, I think. According to his Wikipedia page, Wayne also wrote over 3,000 advertising jingles in the 1970s alone, which does sound like a lot, and the musical version of War of the Worlds, which I remember being terrified by at school. And indeed, the chances of England winning the World Cup were a million to one, they said, and they were right.
Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Jack Pierce from the Crystal Palace fanzine and podcast five-year plan. The five-year plan uh, has been going on since the, the mid-2000s and um, it is named uh, the, the eternal five-year plan, basically. It's the five-year plan, but um, as to what five years that relates to, I think is any Palace's fan to decide. But um, we, we've had many different five-year periods um, in in, uh, in recent years. So, uh, yeah, I think it's more of a, a vague title rather than a particular uh, phase of our history. But the, the fanzine... Um, uh, is is both a, a print fanzine that we we try and get mm. out uh, up to four times a season now, um, and uh, uh, is also a podcast. And we we released a, a weekly podcast, uh, and also there's a pod extra for for those that wish to to offer some uh, pennies on on a via Patreon. So um, yeah, up to two pods a week for for those that want to, but there's at least one free one a week for for anyone to listen to. And it's just you know discussing the trials and tribulations of. Of being a Palace fan and everything to do with on on field matters, but also off field matters too. So, um, yeah, re- recording the pod's great fun. Uh, we have really good interaction with our with our listeners. Lots of great questions, and and really, it's the questions that come in that kind of dictate the the tone and content of the podcast, which is which which means a lot of flexibility in terms of how we approach each week. And uh, d- depending on what's happened on the pitch. Um, means that we <laughs> really d- that kind of dictates how much of on on the pitch we want to talk about after a bit of a thumping uh, we might not really want to talk about what happened the previous weekend and we just talk about other stuff uh, uh, instead but after you know a 2-0 win at city uh, which happened the last time out obviously we just want to talk about what happened on the pitch instead the fanzine uh, was uh, one of uh, many groups who recently completed a a marathon walk around south london and uh, just just the boys from FYP um, that completed it raised over eleven thousand pounds. I think that eleven thousand pounds contributed to to over a hundred thousand pounds raised in total. And that's for Palace for Life Foundation, which is um, a charitable organisation supporting those in need in the South London area. It was uh, of huge use to a lot of people during the pandemic, um, and and really provides valuable support to a lot of people in need in in the community. So uh, FYP is is you know really happy to engage in. Uh, yeah, kind of charitable uh, endeavours and any way to support the club, uh, to support the community. And it's great to be involved in that side of things when, you know, you live in an era where the European Super League is is talked about and billions of pounds and the Newcastle takeover with hundreds of billion pounds quoted. It's it's nice to kind of get back to basics and, and, and remind yourself of what a football club is all about. And essentially that is its um its role in the local community and palace is very very proud to play that role in the, in the local community in south london and and fyp try to do their bit in in terms of supporting that club endeavor mm. on the print fanzine front it's it's always music to my ears to hear a print fanzine still going have you been surprised you managed to keep it going and people buying it because we're told so often that print is dead and all of that aren't we yeah i mean when we when we do sell it obviously the, the pandemic put the put the uh yeah. the brakes on it but, but pre and, and post pandemic um when we have uh had uh, print fanzines to sell people you know snap them up they're really happy to see it they want something to read i think the to be fair to the palace program it's a it's a very good read and very well put together and i know not every club uh, set of fans can say that so um you know a lot of but a lot saying that a lot of fans enjoy kind of the alternative view um yeah. and and while we talk about you know current matters there's also you know significant nods to the past and and one uh, consistent feature over recent years has been the um the interviews with with former players um i think uh, just prior to the uh, pandemic we had a uh, interview with uh, sandor torgeli by one of our hungarian fans um uh, torgeli didn't have a fantastic spell at palace but he's you know a cult name for, for palace followers and, and myself um uh, during a trip to australia a couple of years ago i i managed to to wrangle an hour with tony popovich um who was then head coach of perth glory so got to got to meet him and talk about his involvement with the club during kind of the Ian Dow era, which was great fun, and and also got a, a glimpse into how the A League's operating over there. So um, yeah, we we just try and provide that kind of uh, touch point for fans to to you know read different experiences, different um, opinions about the club that that we all love. Um, and yeah, we, when we when we do have one to sell, typically we do sell out. So speaking about the past, then let's move on to your own supporting life. When and indeed why did you? 
first start to watch Palace? I was born in the late 80s, so um, I, I can say I was around for the kind of a glory era of the, the late 80s, early 90s, and um, I'm told that I was sat in a Palace baby grow watching the 90 Cup final um, while my uh, <laughs> my, my relatives uh, did go to it. But um, So uh, my, my Palace supporting days kind of came... And my first proper memories of it was during the uh, Division One title winning season of 93-94. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team of Chris Armstrong and Gareth Southgate, Nigel Martin in goal. Um, and uh, I think I watched at the season review of that season so many that my parents ended up having to, to buy me uh, a new version of it because uh, I, I just burnt the tape. But my first actual game um, was, a, was a pretty pivotal moment, really, because um, although I'm now a, you know, a lifelong Palace fan, I actually come from Evertonian stock. Um, and my, my grandfather and my dad are both um, ardent uh, Evertonians. And the first game I ever went to was Palace versus Everton in October 94. Um, and uh, thankfully, for uh, from a Palace perspective, Andy Priest scored the winner that day. Whereas if Daniel Amacacci had scored the, uh, the winner at the other end, uh, a fickle five-year-old may well have ended up supporting Everton um, rather than rather than Palace, but that was the uh, the uh, the first game I ever went to. And then after that, I just loved the the sound and feeling of going to football and being at Selhurst Park, and mm-hmm. uh, and still go to to every home game I can today with the odd um, away match uh, for for good measure too. So that's where I I uh, started supporting. And, and during the nineties and two thousands, we had um, you know spells in the Premier League, but they were fairly fleeting. Um, so most of my kind of football adolescence was spent watching second tier football, uh, which was great fun, um, but often involving a rather dire uh, performances in, in front of a floodlit Selhurst Park. But yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a love uh, of the club and, and just being there, you know, family and friends are Palace fans and it's um, it's an absolute pleasure to go there, whatever's happening on the pitch, really. Going for the opposite of pleasure, what have been the worst of times in your supporting life? Well, we've had... Uh, two spells of administration in, in the time that I've been supporting the club. So uh, 2000, 2001, um, and then 2009, 2010 season, we, we entered administration. Um, and for any fan that's been um, affected by their club going to administration, it's just the uncertainty that comes with that that process occurring to, to the club you love. It's the, the uncertainty about the club's future, about players that you you love and adore, um, you know, being sold for, for relative peanuts. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's just that general discomfort that that, that, um, that process brings and the fact that as fans, you can, you know, try and do as much as you can to support the efforts to, to, for the club to, to sustain itself, but effectively you're you're at the mercy of, uh, you know, bankers or the administrators themselves trying to broker a deal. Um, as that said, both the periods of administration have provided wonderful moments. You know, the the uh, last day escape at Stockport um, kind of was the end of the administration process. Simon Jordan had bought the club by that point, um, but you know that memory of Dougie Freeman scoring with with just a few minutes to go at Edgeley Park is one etched in Palace uh, fans' memory. And then more recently, the the 2010 season when the club's future was still uncertain despite the um, the point secured to keep us up but that day at Hillsborough when where Darren Ambrose um, you know scored the the second of our two goals that day um, and the relief uh, that that result brought of us particularly as as it was a point at the uh, at at Hillsborough which actually sent Sheffield Wednesday down so that really was a a, a, a battle uh, which uh, again many many fans will um, have lived with them for the, for the rest of their days so you know despite the the bleak days of administration they have brought very nice positive memories and and memories that the the, the club and, the, and fans will will you know take with them for the rest of their days mm. watching the documentary that, about palace that's been put up on is it amazon prime amazon think, prime I during just, the summer I yeah just type football into anything that we're paying <laughs> for at that moment and watch anything <laughs> what came across was the, the, you've mentioned the word community a lot, but when Palace fans, I, I somehow sort of missed all that at the time. Mm. And it occurred to me it has the feeling of a town football club, and that's not meant disparagingly in the, one of the greatest cities on earth, but in terms of its spirit, so we might say as Northerners and stereotyping, or, you know, Arsenal, Spurs, they don't have that, they're a global club and all of that. But it, it really felt like that to me. There's a real spirit about Palace, isn't there? A community spirit. 
you know, as we say in, in SE25, South London and proud. It's a, it's a real mindset. And, um, you know, pleasingly, we've been able to take that with us during our, our time in the Premier League. It's not something that the club have lost, um, despite the, the grandeur and the riches of the Premier League. We've we've kept that from our from our days in the second tier. And um, I guess the, the feeling that was consolidated when we when we last battled administration and, and staying in that second tier. So, yeah, it, yeah, you're right. I think... Um, that, that's very nice to hear from a neutral perspective, and it's something that that we do feel as as Palace fans. You know, just touching again on the Palace for Life work that, that the club does. You know, that that's I, I know a lot of clubs have their charitable endeavours, but it you know when your club does it as well as Palace seem to be doing it, it's it's great to see and be part of. Um, so yeah, that that community spirit is is great. You know, the fact that that Wilfred Zaha, our talisman, is. Uh, was born and uh, well, sorry, certainly was raised within sight of the club's floodlights. Is is another nod in that you know that that mm. direction and the fact that yeah that 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 South London and proud element is something that that moving forward, I, I really hope the club are able to maintain. Mm. I have to congratulate you on managing ten minutes without mentioning Wilfred Saha is obviously a great <laughs> hero and um, it's, it's almost a throwback to the, the players you'd put on on your wall isn't it maybe you do still I mean I'm not judging anyone <laughs> uh, well I, if I could get away with it I probably would um, he he's just a, an absolute wonderful player for us I, I think his time at Palace is is about as as good as uh, as it's been for any single player uh, in, in Palace's history, I think for many, certainly for myself, he goes down already as as the club's greatest ever player, um, and, and recently passed 50 Premier League goals uh, himself. Um, obviously, all scored for Palace. So uh, he's a talisman. He's a he's an absolute icon for us. Um, and the, the fact he stayed with us, I, I guess you could argue, perhaps not always to his satisfaction, but the fact he stayed with us um, during all these years and uh, effectively is the symbol of our um, most prolonged period in the top flight says it all really. And uh, yeah, the, the love for, for Wilfred Zaha is is uh, fan base wide. And I, I don't think you'll you'll hear a, a, a bad word said about Wilfred Zaha by a Palace fan. What would you name as your, your best of times as a fan? I, I think uh, very fortunately for, for, for those of us uh, you know, seeing it now, I think it's now. Um, mm. You know, I, I think, uh, as I just touched on, this is the the longest period of of consecutive Premier League football, or top flight football. In fact, you know, uh, beyond the existence of of of, uh, of the Premier League. So, mm. it it really is um, a, a time to to be treasured by Palace fans, and um, you know, we 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 haven't uh, always lit up the the Premier League, but you know, relatively speaking. For, for Palace to be in the Premier League for what is now you know nine consecutive seasons is is fantastic. Um, in in the Premier League era, we'd only ever managed one year spells before that. So you know through the management of of uh, Pulis and uh, Pardew, Allardyce, um, you know through to uh, to to Roy um, Hodgson recently, you know we're, we're here. We're still a Premier League club, um, and I think you know, Palace fans will, will be the first to admit that we know that this run will come to an end at some point. So to enjoy it while it's happening is, is the key. And and luckily with the appointment of Patrick Vieira, um, the, the positive energy around the club and in the club and, and in the team, it appears, is is, is, a, is a pleasure to behold. So um, yeah, it, it, it's really good times at the moment. And uh, I think most Palace fans have, have a good head on them and, and, and know that as well. I really have a real fondness for Selhurst Park, the architecture, the atmosphere, but also because I had a falafel wrap there, which is unheard of. <laughs> but I was wondering about the noise, the ultras behind the goal bring. There are probably a few groups of them now. Is that generally something welcomed by other fans? That hundred percent, I think um, the Homesdale fanatics are, are something for all Palace fans to be uh, to be proud of. Um, they contribute a lot to the matchday atmosphere, but also do a lot um, beyond the the ninety minutes the team are playing. You know, during the during the pandemic, they um, asked the club if they could use their part of the Homesdale stand to, to advertise the local food bank um, and, and have a sponsor there. So they're very, um, you know, conscious of, of the local community. And, you know, like I touched on with Palace's general attitude towards supporting the local community, the, the HF are, are, are the same minded. But the, yeah, I mean, going back to their um, their ability to maintain an atmosphere during some rather drab games over the last few years um, at, at points has has been fantastic, and and they do they they keep the atmosphere going. Um, I, I think um, their management of our um, 
seating area uh, or designated seating area when we uh, played both the uh, FA Cup semi-final and the final, um, which sadly we ended up losing. But, you know, those, those are images that I think a lot of people were taken aback by. It, it's rather unlike um, many other English football clubs. So to, to have the ability to... Um, know manage a whole set of fans to to display typhos like they did is 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 just great and um yeah their 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 ability to maintain an atmosphere as i said even during the the drabbest of of games is 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 really a, a very very impressive talent and finally they may unite the fans but does glad all over still unite the fans is it played at weddings is it universally loved it's played at weddings it was famously played at my aunt's 60th birthday uh, a, f- a few years ago and um it's it's just a great it's a great tune if i hear it anywhere um it, it just takes me back to you know two minutes to three on a on a saturday <laughs> afternoon you've been listening to the when saturday comes podcast produced and edited by me daniel gray Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.